are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. What's God's posture and character as it pertains to the environment? Does God care about flowers and bees and mountaintops and trees? How does it relate to God's desire for justice and God's care for the orphan and the widow? How does it relate to God's care and concern for those who live on the margin, even the unborn? Today, we're going to see all of those topics come together under the subject of environmentalism. Now, already that might be a subject or a topic that is maybe even off limits, if not to you, then maybe to the people that you lead or people that you shepherd. Maybe it's off limits to the people in your church and has deep economic implications. In today's episode, though, you're not going to encounter somebody who's got knuckle wrapping and wrist slapping. You've got a person who deeply believes in the biblical text and has a heart that desires people to experience the full measure of freedom that has been made for us in Christ. Joining us today is Dr. Sandra Richter. She is the author most recently of Stewards of Eden, what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. Dr. Richter has a PhD from Harvard University and she is the Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College. She's been involved in translation work, she's been involved in archeology, span she's been a professor and she deeply loves the local church. She's been one who's been talking about this issue out of her love for scripture, even before it was, let's say, a little bit easier than it is now, especially in academic circles. She's been talking about this topic and has developed wisdom on how to talk about this topic, even if the audience is not immediately interested or not immediately open to even talking about it. Dr. Richter joins us today from her home where she has a husband, two children, three chickens, and one cat. And as she told me, if I forget about the cat, the cat would not let me forget about her. So joining us today is Dr. Richter. I think that you'll enjoy this podcast and some of Dr. Richter's biblical scholarship and winsome attitude as well. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum, and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shapit, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Richter. We are honored that you're with us. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So today we're talking about the environment. We're talking about the broader subject of creation and the context in which God has given to all of us that we are sharing and stewarding together. I'd love to start out just by asking you, how did you become interested in this topic? Hmm. It's funny, I'm getting asked that question a lot these days. And I would say that my, my interest in the topic of environmental stewardship really precedes my conversion to Christ. Uh, I was 
raised in a Navy home. We moved all the time. We lived in a lot of um, obscure places and camped a lot. And I just always heard the voice of God when I was in the woods or on the ocean or whatever it was. So I uh, was a person who always responded to general revelation, as our audiences might say. But when I became a Christian, like a lot of folks in our tribe, I was kind of taught that environmental concern was very much a second tier issue, that uh, I needed to be out saving souls and everything else was um, disposable, up for grabs. So you've gathered some of the information and research that you've done and placed it in this really readable uh, little book called Stewards of Eden, What Scripture mm -hmm. Says About the Environment and Why It Matters, published by University Press. And in it, what shines through is part of your high view of Scripture, right? You're taking Scripture seriously. You're honoring it by delving deeply into it. And also your desire for formation and to make this practical. And so there's ways that you're engaging uh, the reader by different ways that they might apply scripture, not in kind of a superficial way, but in a way that's deeply formed by the text. So the subtitle of the book is, um, uh, or the first question of the book says this, can a Christian be an environmentalist? So maybe let's start with some definition of terms and then I'd love for you to answer that question. Uh, so okay. first, what do you mean by environmentalist and can a Christian be one? Hmm. Yeah, so kind of launching off my response to your first question, uh, I didn't think a Christian could be, or at least that we didn't have space in our uh, commitment to holy living uh, to uh, advocate for the environment. And that was my first understanding, but this constant uh, urging in my own heart, in my own soul, and in my own relationship with God was, no, this, this care for the environment, stewardship of God's good gift, is actually a reflection of the character of God. And as Wesleyans, of course, our whole idea of sanctification is to be conformed to the image of the Son. So uh, all of these things were working inside of me in my early Christian walk. And uh, as I move forward as both a pastor and an academic and into my scholarship, and this book is one of the outgrowths of that. So you've asked the question, uh, let's define some terms. When I define the term environmentalist, I mean uh, a human being who is invested in the responsible stewardship of this planet and its flora and its fauna. I don't define the term in political terms. And interestingly, uh, your readers will find that right in the introduction, because the first thing I ask is, where is the church on this topic? Uh, why haven't we answered this particular call to investing in our communities, or as some would call it, social justice. Why, why are we uh, missing in action? Or again, going back to my military upbringing, why are we AWOL on the topic? And one of the reasons is because of the way our culture, our society defines this topic. It's become highly politicized. And so I think the lead issue that makes Christians kind of stand at a distance from this topic is that it's become guilty by association. Mm. And our particular American political client, uh, climate, and this is not true of the UK at all, 
I was just giving the Lang lectures in England and they were stunned that I would even ask the question, can a Christian be environmentalist? Because of course their response was, well, what else can a Christian be? Hmm. But, but in American politics, yes, uh, we've politicized it. And if I were to ask you, which political party is associated with environmental concern, you would say? The Democrats. Yes, yeah, and which political party is associated with uh, the value of human life? Mm, the Republicans. Mm, yes. Did I get them right? And, <laughs> yeah, you did, yeah, you did. <laughs> and so, at least in my lifetime, uh, it, there's there's almost become this this humorous question, right? Uh, are are you um, a Christian or are you a Democrat? You know, uh, that that sort of posture, and and that is not true all over the country, but it is true in a lot of our context. And so, because environmental concern has been associated with the Democratic Party, and because the Democratic Party supposedly is associated with a, a low view of human life. Um, yeah, environmentalism has gotten guilty by association. So as we go through this podcast, let me try and break it into two sections. I'd like to go a little bit into your expertise as an Old Testament scholar and ask a couple of questions there. And then let's bring it back to some of your desire for formation in the local church and maybe even some wisdom for pastors. Because I know that whenever you started uh, presenting on this subject, researching and presenting, that, that this was not an easy subject to address. It was yeah. not one that you would have faced uh, without without opposition even. Um, mm -hmm. It would have been one that, that took some courage and some and some wisdom and and let's not call it uh, politi politicization, but it took maybe it takes a little bit of politics, right? To to know how to be polite and how mm -hmm. to how to win your your audience over so that we're able to hear um, what the message is. And I think one of the things that uh, has consistently been true in your scholarship. And I'll just give a shout out to your book, The Epic of Eden. I find it a really great book and I often, often recommend it, <laughs> is that uh, you're able to ground uh, so many claims deeply in the text, but not in a way that they are confusing. So oh. as you've done that with the subject of environmentalism, let me address a couple of topics. One of them is sacrifice. Uh, you write about the tribes of Israel being God's tenants and that the land and its fruits belong to God. So God has placed them in the land to use your word, steward it and take care of it. And that mm -hmm. what it gives forth belongs to God. Talk to us about uh, this reading of scripture and how it relates to the practice of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Well, this, as, as you've already flagged, is it, it's what I do. Uh, when I approach the biblical text, I'm doing biblical theology always. And the Epic of Eden is uh, probably the premier example. I believe firmly that if we're going to understand the character of God, we need to know his self-revelation in the biblical text, and we need to recognize that there is a great arc of redemptive history that runs from Eden to the New Jerusalem. And uh, as I do in my curriculums and in my books, we need to be able to put the frame on the jigsaw puzzle. If we're going to understand God, and if we're going to understand his will for humanity and for this planet, uh, we've got to understand that the blueprint that was offered to us in creation is the final plan as well. Uh, God is not out creating some brand new plan for humanity. He's trying to rescue humanity to get them back into the original plan. So when I survey any topic, 
uh, be it uh, the Holy Spirit or uh, environmentalism or uh, the nature of the place of the people of God, you're going to watch me run it all the way through the biblical text. What does the covenant with Adam have to say about this? What about Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant? And that's what I do in this book as well. I take the topic of environmentalism, which as we've already discussed has become very politicized and therefore very polarized. And I simply ask the question, not just can a Christian be an environmentalist, but really is God an environmentalist? Because that's what we're after, right? What is the character of God? What's the posture of God on this topic? And can we answer that question? And so as we look at the blueprint that is in Genesis chapter one and two, we see that humanity, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are specifically commanded to tend the garden and to defend the garden. So la'ovda and la'shomra are our two imperatives. Get out there, Adam and Eve, and make this garden great and make it great by uh, taking very good care of it, but also, and this is a posture that I find throughout the biblical text, recognizing that the garden is a gift to humanity, that all of this amazing planet and its flora and its fauna that's been given to us for our flourishing will never actually belong to us. From the land grant in Eden to the land grant that is Israel to the new heavens and the new earth, this property actually belongs to our suzerain Lord. This belongs to the lessor, not the lessee, to the landlord, not the renter. And at every juncture in redemptive history, we humanity are being called to recognize this stuff is God's. It's been, it's been offered to us so that we might flourish, but it never belongs to us. Mm. And so just like someone who's renting an apartment, if you don't return that apartment the way you found it or better, you can be pretty sure that your security deposit is going up in smoke. You used the word uh, suzerain, that God mm. is our suzerain. Unpack that for us a little bit. What's, what's that term mean? And how might it help us to, as readers of the Old Testament, how might it how might it help us to unpack that story that's going on? Yeah. So again, uh, in the Epic of Eden, I think it's chapter three, I dedicate to uh, the, the covenant idea that stands behind God's, God's explanations of his relationship with humanity. Obviously, God is way bigger than human history and way better than human form, bigger than human forms. But he chooses this idea of covenant to communicate himself to us. And the biblical text is organized around the concept of covenant. Obviously, we have an old covenant and a new covenant that we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, but really that's the word behind it. So a lot of scholarship will tell us that the concept of covenant moves into Israel's world very early on. And by the time Moses is standing on Mount Sinai, the idea of a greater king making a contract essentially with a lesser king in a suzerain vassal relationship is all over the ancient Near East. And so as God attempts to explain himself to this rabble of slaves that have just escaped the polytheism of Egypt, he explains himself through this form. And he identifies himself as their sovereign lord, which means suzerain, and he identifies them as his vassal nation. And he says, okay, I'm gonna offer you a treaty. 
and everyone in the crowd is like, oh, okay, I know what a treaty is. I'm going to offer you a treaty. And if you will keep the stipulations of this treaty, then I'm going to bless you. And this is the secular language. This is not Bible speak. This is actually international ancient Near Eastern treaty speak. I'm going to offer you the following blessings. And the blessings will include a land grant. A land grant that I, the suzerain, will defend against your external enemies and against internal usurpation by, you know, some um, radical or renegade king that's trying to overthrow you. I'm going to keep your land fertile. I'm going to make sure your citizenry is well fed. And that those will be my blessings as long as you remain loyal to me. And that treaty secular relationship is what becomes the book of the covenant, the 10 commandments and the book of Deuteronomy. And this is God being the master teacher. He's explaining himself to Israel through a form they understand. And so that form continues all the way through our biblical text. So I mentioned the, the concept of sacrifice, this uh, offering back to God that which the land had produced, and mm. this being uh, an affirmation of the, the goodness of, of the land. And mm-hmm. maybe uh, what's coming to mind is, so this is kind of out, of out of left field, but what's coming to mind is whenever the nation was... Uh, um, established under Solomon. There had been some, some question as to who was going to be, to be king, him or, or one of his older brothers. Solomon is established, and he has this, this massive act of sacrifice to God, all, all kinds of sacrifices to God. And, and a person who's reading that uh, in, a, in just a cursory way might say, well, that's hardly an environmentalist kind of action, right? To have this kind of what almost seems like waste. Uh, to God, yeah. how can you help us reconcile between these acts that the people would would take, giving to back to God uh, as offerings, and and often just the, the burning up, or the or the otherwise non use, not very useful work of these uh, of the fruit? Um, how would how would we try to reconcile that kind of sacrificial action with one that saw uh, deep value and goodness in what the land had given? Hmm. Gosh, I I could grab hold of that question on several fronts. Um, let me uh, let me grab hold of it first. In that, anytime we're going to assess uh, what God is actually commanding, we need to look at the the law codes. We need to look at the stipulations of the covenant. So we've got three law codes in the biblical text. We've got the book of the covenant, which is Exodus 19 through 23. We've got the book of Leviticus and we've got the book of Deuteronomy, which actually outline what you should be doing. Now, what you wind up doing, which would be the narrative with Solomon, might not line up with that law code. So the what people do might not be what they should do. So that would be one handle. Um, another handle is that when we look at the sacrifices of Solomon, which is this huge regnal celebration, right, of the passing on the kingdom to an heir, uh, what Solomon essentially has done is he's invited the entire nation to a party. And so he's got to cater the party. And every time you see sacrifice going on in the biblical text, uh, 95% of the time, the majority of the sacrificed animal is actually going back to the worshiper. We're not simply burning up animals. Every once in a while, there's, you know, there's a Holocaust offering, but most of the offerings are being slaughtered by the worshiper, 
portioned by the priest, and then the bulk of the meat of the animal is actually going back to the worshipers to throw a big barbecue. And <clears throat> we also need to keep in mind that the Israelites usually only eat meat on high holidays. So one of the reasons holidays are high holidays is you finally get to slaughter the fatted calf or mm -hmm. the sheep or the goat or whatever it is. Um, these people are living a highly vegetarian diet. Um, so those are a couple of handles on that story. Uh, narrow in on what you're, you're most interested in. Uh, honestly, I was, I was drawing from something I had read uh, not, not too long ago and uh, wrapping it back into the sense of God being the suzerain and, and whether in that there is the sense of uh, um, how we might keep a, uh, a proper posture towards God without this simply becoming rote or, or without this becoming kind of uh, legalistic, maybe you would even say that mm. I, I, I do this and now I can expect God to do this, which, uh -huh. which kind of misses some of where the, the trajectory of scripture goes. And certainly the relational context of, of Genesis two, mo most clearly that mm -hmm. the, the intimate relationship of God with his people is as close as, as breath and the, and the air against our, our face, so to speak. So I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to wrestle through, is there, a, is there a way that there might be um, um, abiding, abiding the, the letter of, of Allah, so to speak, but you've said, well, even the letter wasn't necessarily abided, which I think is a great principle that what we see as reported in scripture isn't always what scripture has commanded, right? There's a way to, to read mm -hmm. that critically with, well, what has gone on before and what instructions have been given that would color our interpretation of what this action is. Maybe it's not one that is to be followed and maybe it's not one that is to be affirmed. Maybe it's an, it's an illustration of something gone wrong or is to flavor our interpretation of who this character is and what they are, what they are like. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, and Solomon is definitely a man of excesses, as we, mm. as we all learn. But I love what you were saying about the legalism versus uh, something bigger. And this is really what I'm after when I talk about tracking all of the biblical witness. Mm. My, my hope, my prayer, my dream of my own life as a Christian is that my posture, my character would echo the posture and the character of my God. And that, of course, is a lot of what happens in the Gospels when Jesus starts bumping into the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, that they have memorized the laws, but their character, their posture, has grown far afield of the character of their God. So they're, you know, they're barking about a lame man who gets healed because He's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. You know, goodness gracious. This, you know, this amazing declaration of the character of God has just happened right in front of them and all they can see is the mat, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so as we look at that overarching character, what is God's posture? And this is part of what I try to accomplish in the book. How does God feel about the eagle that flies on high and nests in the high country? How does God um, posture himself toward uh, the wilderness and its wildflowers and the streams in the desert? How does he feel or communicate about the dawn or the mountains or the oceans? And you don't have to read much of the Bible <clears throat> to realize that our God celebrates the beauty 
of all of these things, celebrates them. And one of the uh, collections in scripture I adore are the whirlwind speeches in the book of Job, where God shows up and says, where were you when, mm. um, you know, uh, now I can't quote it, of course. So one of the portions of scripture that I adore are the whirlwind speeches in the book of Job. And this is that moment where Job has been suffering uh, immeasurably. I, I can't even imagine actually what uh, Job has experienced. And at this juncture in chapters 38, 39 of the book, God shows up. <clears throat> and when he shows up, he says to Job, have you ever in your life commanded the morning or caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Can you stalk prey for a lioness and satisfy the young lion's appetite? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth or have you watched the calving of the does? And Yahweh just launches in this beautiful, overwhelming description of the wilderness and the animals that it houses and supports and its beautiful flora and the stars and the sun and the wind and the ocean, all these things that in many ways only God knows. And when we manage to go on a wilderness backpacking trip or we manage to get ourselves on a sailboat out to sea where we can't see any shores, we get a little hint of. And really what we're getting a hint of is who our God is who our God is, what his handiwork is, and how he's chosen to reveal himself to us. So as we look at this planet, all the classic theologians would tell us this is general revelation. This is a sketch of the profile of God. What should our posture be toward this phenomenal ecosystem? It should be the same posture as that of our God. Mm. I'm thinking about uh, maybe some of the social imagination that we can live in, and that is to see things for their use, right? Mm. How, how is it beneficial to, to me or to even to us, and how can we uh, use it as a product, or how can we bring something productive from it? And yet, that simply isn't the posture of, of God, right? This sense of appreciation and, and even taking delight, that's a different posture than seeing mm -hmm. something for its, uh, simply for its utilitarian value. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I would say that God sees both because he does offer this planet to humanity as uh, a resource to be used. He does do that. And a lot of the classic anti-environmentalists, in fact, I was just on a radio interview a few days ago and um, my host was kind of going hard on this topic. Uh, the idea that supposedly environmentalists don't want just us to touch anything. And that's not God's posture. In fact, I have a proverb that I repeat in the book several times. The Almighty has, has given humanity this planet so that we may flourish. So the proverb goes, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. He's given it to humanity to use in our need, but not to abuse in our greed. Hmm. And I, I would argue now as an armchair scientist, and I'm only an armchair scientist and a professional theologian, biblical studies person, that the essence of our environmental crisis doesn't have to do with need. It has to do with greed. 
And you had asked a question earlier about the Sabbath ordinance and how that plays into it. And I, I think this is very telling, again, about the posture of our God, both toward us and toward the larger creation, because we are creatures too, um, but also in how we as humanity have gotten this wrong. So talk to us a little bit about, about Sabbath. I'm, I'm thinking of the language that we might sometimes use with Sabbath, that it might be uh, we take Sabbath or, or we might even consider that Sabbath, Sabbath is this time that we sacrifice or that, that we give back to God, this kind of like it's ours to give back or it's, it's something that we need to take. But mm-hmm. you keep pointing back to Sabbath as a gift. It's something mm. that's given to us and it reminds us that we are creatures. Maybe talk to us about uh, why a good theology of Sabbath helps to influence our environmental concerns. Yes, and it absolutely does. And let me recommend my friend Matthew Sleeth has got a nice book on Sabbath and its relationship to environmental concerns. I've got a section in my book. So what is the Sabbath? Uh, Henri Blochet, one of our wonderful Genesis theologians, makes the statement that Sabbath is this moment that is given to humanity so that we can remember that our ultimate identity doesn't come from organizing or conquering this earth, but our ultimate humanity is a reflection of our relationship with our creator. And it's the Sabbath that helps us remember that. Um, I've got the quote in the book. I wish I could pull it up verbatim because Blochet says it better than I do. Um, The Jews would tell you that the Sabbath is the great gift to humanity. They, hands down, this special magical moment in time where we just stop, we stop. And uh, any mental health expert would tell you that Sabbath is fabulous for uh, our mental health, our emotional health. I think COVID-19 has shown us uh, how everybody having to stay home can do amazing things for our families and our relationships when the busyness stops. The Sabbath ordinance, as you know, is built into the Sinai Covenant. And the command basically is just stop. Stop producing, stop consuming, put your feet up, stop. And when you stop, let your servants stop as well. Your sons, your daughters, your oxen, your donkeys, everything stop. And it's even extended to let your fields stop, Mm. which in a pre-industrial society is really the only way you're going to reinvigorate your soul, your soil, it's soul. There's a Freudian slip there. Um, So the Sabbath is commanded uh, throughout the old covenant for everything and everyone. And I think it stands in great critique to American uh, society and American value systems. And let me say American, not Christian. You know, they're they're not co-equal statements. In our American value system, we are taught from the very youngest of age to squeeze every penny out of our budget, every minute out of our day, every dollar out of our resources to go, 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 pedal faster, pedal faster, make it happen. We are not trained in Sabbath. And I think we're seeing lots of ramifications of that in uh, family health, in mental health, in physical health. But can I say we're also seeing it in environmental health? One of the things that has really shocked me about our current uh, pandemic is watching the impact 
of the planet stopping for six weeks on air quality and water quality. And yeah, it's really interesting. Well, my brother sent me a, a comment. So I grew up in the province of Quebec. And one of the things that came out that the premier of Quebec instituted in the midst of COVID-19 was that there, most Quebec stores would close on Sundays to give frontline workers uh, and other, other people a rest, that, that mm. this was going to be a time that would, that would rest and that they would have a chance to rest. And I was even reflecting on it as I ref, uh, you know, just engage in household duties that I find myself... Um, Whenever I am disciplined not to do household chores and things that I draw very little joy from <laughs> on, <laughs> on, uh, on Sunday, which is our, our Sabbath day, our day of rest, whenever I'm disciplined not to do that work, and my wife is often, and she is kind about it, to, to remind me, you know, this is, do you have to do that today? That my frustration at doing those things through the week is so much lower. Mm. so much lower and and i think in part of it is because <laughs> sabbath is status uh giving I, i'm reflecting i'm rem reminding uh or i'm remembering remembering uh an article i read on on sabbath i think it was peter lightheart another biblical theologian and uh, he was talking about how sabbath gives status because work was often not optional right work is mm -hmm. something that everybody had to do it, it was the it was the wealthy and those with status who didn't have to work and who had that as an option and now god gives that to everybody and by giving mm -hmm. it to everybody it extends out it's like it raises everybody else and suddenly whenever i'm just seeing that seep into my own life then whenever i have discipline to claim this status of i don't need to work because of who god has made me to be and that mm -hmm. called me to himself then me as a worker throughout the week is far less frustrating and often is, is a source of joy then. Uh, but it does take discipline to, mm -hmm. to recognize, okay, uh, you know, it's kind of the dual edged sword. On the, on the one hand, uh, if I rest, then it's humbling because not everything is up to me and I'm not mm -hmm. totally in control. But at the same time, if I'm disciplined to rest as God is directed, then it's a status giving uh, practice at the same time. And when we think about the fact that Israel was a subsistence economy through most of its existence, one of the things, I do a lot of archaeology in the book. I, I make it real in the book. So we, we talk about oxen and donkeys and what crops they're raising and what pests they're dealing with and how the laws speak into that contents. So this is a society where uh, Baruch Rosen, one Israeli archaeologist, has demonstrated that their hungry season and if you're an anthropologist, this makes sense to you. Most agricultural societies have a hungry season mm. um, between planting and harvest. Israel's hungry season was about 60 days long. This is 60 days for the average family where if you don't discipline all year long, there's no food. And yet these people are being told to rest their animals one day out of seven. These people are being told to rest their fields one year out of seven. They're being told to rest themselves one day out of seven, even though this is going to cut into an essential food supply. And what God is saying over and over, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, is if you'll dial it back and trust me, I'm going to take care of you. But this is not a cost-free proposition. This is, this is risky for them to do this. Mm. But that Sabbath ordinance stands as, as you said, a discipline, a boundary on their lives. And over and over again, the Sabbath ordinance, they're being reminded, you will rest because you were a slave in Egypt. 
Mm. Your beast will rest because you were a slave in Egypt. Your slave will rest because you were a slave in Egypt. In other words, you know what it feels like to work seven days a week. You know what it feels like to never get a break. You will never do that to anyone else. And I will never allow you to do it to yourself again, mm. which you know is this act of parental disciplinary love. And I would argue that if we just even just had that posture in our lives, regarding our interaction with God good, God's good gifts of this environment, we would not be looking at the environmental crisis we're looking at. Joining us today is Dr. Sandra Richter. Dr. Richter uh, has recently written the book, Stewards of Eden, What Scripture Says About the Environment and Why It Matters. I wanna pick up on one word that you just used and use it to spin into a final question I have for you. You use the mm. word risk that for the Israelites to practice this had carried real risk whenever they're, yes. they're in subsistence economy. So if, uh, if, if um, everybody's barely getting by and if one person's doing well, then probably everybody's doing well and you want people to do well. But if, if they're all, if they're one person suffering, they're probably all suffering. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, and you described it as a, as a hungry season and how to entrust themselves to God with this would be a risk. And the reason I want to key, on, key in on that word is I can imagine we've got some people who are in church leadership of one form or another oh, who are yes. saying, you know what, I heard you at the start of this <laughs> podcast describe um, maybe what my story is too, right? This is, this is not an easy subject to talk about. I've got people for whom they hear this word, just they hear the, the E word, the word environment, mm -hmm. and, and suddenly you know, uh, their, their ears are perking up, but they're listening for, am I going to get the code words right? And this might be one way or another, right? This, this could be in one direction or the other. And they're saying, if I talk about this, it's going to be a risk, right? Maybe they mm -hmm. say, maybe they say, if I even talk about scripture or the environment producing what we need, somebody's going to clue in and say, no, 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 you're talking about being greedy. Or if I talk about uh, the way to delight in, in nature and delight in the creation, they're going to hear about, oh, but you're just, you know, you're, you're not, you're not you're a tree hugger, man, that, that God has given it to us for, for our needs and for our, for our use, right? There's a risk. How might you, out of your experience, encourage a person who says, you know what, this is part of the biblical story. It's part of my mandate as a pastor and as a teacher to address this with my people. Uh, how would you uh, suggest they go about doing this wisely to try to mitigate risk, even if you can't do away with it altogether? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things I say in the introduction is that we have gotten, gotten torn between two views, right? Uh, that uh, environmental concern is not essential to promoting the kingdom. It's a peripheral issue, or it's even a, an issue that's alien to the biblical text, and, and we don't want to go there. Um, you know, that, that definitely is a message out there. So this book was written specifically for the people that you're talking about. In fact, I, I wrote this wanting to create a biblical theology of environmentalism. There are so many voices out there that are screaming for our allegiance. Hmm. But I think that every true citizen of the kingdom of God wants to hear the voice of scripture. And so that's all this book does. All it does is biblical theology and then case studies to illustrate the biblical theology. It doesn't delve into um, uh, some of the more radical aspects or just the politicized aspects of the agenda. So I think the first thing I would encourage a pastor to do or someone in Christian leadership is actually read the book and actually realize, that, oh my gosh, 
this topic is all over scripture. I thought it was, you know, some little cherry picking thing. No, it's all over scripture. This is an aspect of the posture of God and the character of God. And, you know, actually see that the Israelites had laws about humane animal husbandry. They actually had laws about sustainable agriculture. They have laws about environmental terrorism. In 1200 BC, they have laws about environmental terrorism. They have a law about finding a wild bird and not being able to take both her and her eggs. They have to leave one or the other so that this particular species can continue to reproduce in this particular space. Who, th who would have thought that? And the biblical text also helps us to start seeing that the widow and the orphan are the first, the first to catch the blow when environmental degradation occurs. Mm -hmm. So if we as Christians are committed to justice and care for the marginalized, we got to start caring about the global environment as well. So I would encourage a person to read the book and read it critically. Hey, uh, I can take it. The book can take it. Um, and uh, start uh, cultivating that um, empathy for where God is on this topic. And if they're in a situation that is particularly dicing, I think that uh, that empathy is just going to start oozing out in their teaching and their preaching, and it's going to start influencing their people. If you're in a situation that's a little more friendly, hey, start a little study group. Uh, at the end of each chapter, and again, the book is brief because my, my hope was to be able to hand it off to my students, and they could hand it off to their parents and to their grandparents, and actually hear the voice of scripture in here, start a little reading group. There are questions at the end of every chapter that, you know, help you move this around and see if you can apply it to your current context. Um, I think, and I, I'm waxing eloquent here, but Erin, I think that you can relate to this. Throughout our life experiences, Christian leaders, culture is always running off one way or another, chasing rabbits, going down rabbit trails, and the church is always very tempted to chase the rabbit, right? So on so many issues, uh, sometimes our culture helps us to see something we haven't seen before, and this is an appropriate critique, but so often good-meaning folks replace some new, uh, take a new cultural ideology and sort of replace the gospel with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying this backwards. The idea that instead of being the heralds of the kingdom, we become the heralds of an issue. Well, I, I want to tell you that my own personal commitment is to remain a herald of the kingdom. I don't think environmentalism is the gospel, but I do think that the restoration of this fallen world into the returned status of the blueprint in Genesis 1 and 2 is the the finality of the great arc of redemption and environmental concern is is in the mix. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that clearly. Help me say it better. What I'm hearing you say is that if we want our people to live rightly and to enjoy the freedom that is Christ-like living, then you can't do away with the wider context in which they live, which includes flora, fauna, animals, roads, trees, mountains, cities, all, the, all those, 
orphans. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and, and to bring it back even to COVID-19 is, you know, we really are becoming aware that, well, many of us live in very close proximity to people. And uh, we can get going quickly in our in our daily lives. And sometimes it's a, it's it's tragic, but we can live in close proximity to our family members and, and not really realize it because the pace is so quick. And at the same time, uh, we can live in fast paced lives uh, external to our home and forget that we live in close proximity to other people as well. They're not mm-hmm. part of our, our households, immediate households, but they can be neighbors, <coughs> they can be people who live in the same city, live, live in the same province or, or state. And whenever, if, if we're going to enjoy the benefit of relationality and community and God giving us one to another as well, then we have to take seriously and, and uh, we have to teach on the wider context in which we live, which includes our environmental contexts and that those are wrapped up together. And so it's good news, right? I think that mm-hmm. one of the things that people um, can fear is that if we talk about the environment, then it's just going to be wrist slapping and, and knuckle, knuckle wrapping, right? That it's just going to be bad news. But, yeah. but it's, it's not. It's part of the good news. It's part of the benefit. It's part of the freedom that God has for us to live in the world as Christ uh, would live in the world um, and, li- and does live in the world through us by his Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And let me throw one anecdote on there as well. Um, in the beginning of the book, I talk about the first time I gave an environmental message from a pulpit. Now, I had been environmentally concerned, mostly let me just say, I love creation. Uh, But actually bringing it to a pulpit was a very new experience. It was 2005. It was Asbury Theological Seminary. And Christine Pohl, our ethics professor, was running the Kingdom Conference that year. And she actually proposed that we deal with uh, environmental stewardship. And I was like, Christine, do you, do you know what you're asking? And she's like, yeah, I do. And I want you to be our speaker. And I don't know if I've ever agonized over Mm. a 20-minute presentation more because I was very aware that I could flip switches and trigger people in a fashion that would not only damage their, uh, their posture toward this topic that I cared so much about, but could also circumvent a very important conference on our campus. And what I realized and... And, and thank God managed to accomplish was that you know, every audience has got their value system. Yeah. And the people of God, their value system should be our rule of faith and praxis, i.e. the Bible, the voice of scripture. And I learned a very important lesson in that kingdom conference that if I speak from scripture, the people of God will listen and the people of God want to listen. Mm. And Asbury listened, and they became a major recycler in the region, and they still have a very strong posture toward environmental concern right there in central Kentucky, which is not an environmental hotspot. Um, I end the book uh, speaking about who the church has been throughout the centuries. And you and I both know that who the church has been is the community that's willing to step forward for the widow, the orphan, the marginalized. We've, we've been the people who have packed our caskets before we got on ships to head off to foreign lands knowing we would never come home. 
We are the community that has founded most of the hospitals and orphanages on this planet. That's who we are at our best. And my ambition in this book is to make us aware that this is part of that mission. And in fact, right now I can name for you six or eight dear, dear friends who've taken the gospel of Jesus Christ to places like Madagascar, and they've taken it with tree planting campaigns, with well digging campaigns, with midwife campaigns, because they're helping these people reclaim their natural environment and thereby um, regain their identity as, as children of God. Let me read you this one last quote and I'll shut up. Okay, this one is coming from Gus Speth. He was the chairman of the Council of Environmental Quality under Jimmy Carter and has continued um, a very visible uh, personality in the environmental movement for decades. And this is an interview at his retirement. Okay, uh, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. I love this quote because I'm listening to a hard natural scientist saying, oh my gosh, I've got to be able to change the heart of human beings. And I don't know how to do that. And I want to jump up in the crowd and say, Mr. Speth, I know how to do that. <laughs> I know exactly how to do that. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ mm. that doesn't just change actions, it changes hearts. And it transforms people so that they are willing to sacrifice. They're willing to give up what they have because they see a greater cause and they see the marginalized on the edges, and they're not willing to turn a blind eye. They don't live their lives simply by how much they can make. They live their lives by the quality of the character of their God. And that quote excites me because I think it throws wide the door of where the church should be on this topic. Joining us today has been Dr. Sandy Richter. Dr. Richter is the author of Stewards of Eden, What Scripture Says About the Environment and Why It Matters. Thank you so much, Sandy, for joining us on today's podcast. I certainly appreciate you sharing not simply your scholarship, but also your personal uh, story and sharing some wisdom with us as well as our listeners attempt to address this topic faithfully and we hope and pray fruitfully as well. Thank you. It's, it's been a joy to be here. And thank you to your audience for listening to this topic. I, I, I hope that the podcast and the book will do good work. Uh, I think you're right to thank the audience. I often say thank you listeners because without listeners and I often wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have these conversations and they give me a chance <laughs> to have conversations with people that have done good work and are interesting and engaging. So thank you audience. I do appreciate you being here and listening in. Thank you to Cam Davis, who is, uh, does such a great job editing and producing the podcast. Thanks Cam. Love working with you as well. I'd appreciate if this podcast episode has been valuable to you that you would uh, upvote it and share it around. Like and subscribe on the different platforms that you're accessing the Wesley Seminary podcast that we can share this resource with others. So thanks, Dr. Richter. Thank you, audience and listeners. Thank you, Cam. Uh, and trust you all to God and that you all will have a great day. Thanks so much. It's been great to be here.
find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.